Now streaming only on Disney+. Plus. My name is Taylor. Welcome to the Eras Tour. Experience Taylor Swift's record-breaking Eras Tour. Swift, the Eras Tour, Taylor's version, with four additional acoustic songs. Now streaming only on Disney+. Plus. What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Adam Kempinar. And I'm Josh Larson. Repeat after me. That's Daniel Kaluuya leading the chant as Black Panther, Chairman Fred Hampton in the new film Judas and the Black Messiah. As the title indicates, this is not your typical biopic. The Judas, played by Lakeith Stanfield, is an FBI informant who infiltrates Hampton's Panthers. We've got a review. And we kick off our 40s noir marathon with William Wyler's The Letter, starring Betty Davis. A very unsympathetic Betty Davis. That and more ahead on Film Spotting. You're listening to Film Spotting with Josh and Adam. The first clue that you've actually seen William Wyler's 1940 noir, The Letter, before is what, Josh? <laughs> yeah, I think it was the hammocks, seeing, seeing the workers asleep in those hammocks on the the rubber harvesting plantation. I, I don't know how I forgot that I saw that, Adam. It's, yeah, a mem- I mean, it's a memorable movie. Betty Davis murders a dude in cold blood <laughs> and then just looks up at the moon like she's a vampire or something. You know, this is this is what you get when you don't take the time to write even a paragraph, just a couple of lines reviewed. This was I must have seen it long before the days of not only Letterbox but my own website, which kind of serves as an archive. This had to have been a long time ago, but indeed, those first couple of minutes, I was like, oh yeah, yeah, I've seen the letter. <laughs> well, we will discuss the letter, the first film in our six film forties noir marathon later in the show. First, a movie I definitely remember seeing because I just watched it last week. Judas and the Black Messiah. You're looking at 18 months for the stolen car, five years for impersonating a federal officer, or you can go home. The Black Panthers are forming a rainbow coalition of oppressed brothers and sisters of every color. Their aim is to sow hatred and inspire terror. I will learn all that I can. I these ain't no terrorists. You can murder a liberator, but you can't murder a liberation. You can murder a revolutionary, but you can't murder a revolution. And you can murder a freedom fighter, but you can't murder freedom. Judas and the Black Messiah is a capital I important film, Adam, in ways that seriously matter. So it might seem like I'm underselling things when I say that I enjoyed it most as a character study of a particular movie type, the screen weasel. 
we'll get to Judas and the Black Messiah's seriousness and its relevance to today. But the first thing I want to ask you about is Lakeith Stanfield's electric performance. Stanfield plays Bill O'Neill, a somewhat reluctant informant for the FBI who infiltrated Chicago's Black Panthers in the late 60s. While rising to become head of security, O'Neill passed on various information to the feds, which ultimately led to the police raid and killing of Black Panther leader Fred Hampton. Hampton, played by Daniel Kaluuya. I'm sure we'll get to his performance, too, as well as the contributions of co-writer and director Shaka King. So in O'Neill, we have a historical figure, but also a specific sort of movie character, a type that happens to attract some of our best actors, the weaselly chameleon, the poser, the conniver. This is the sort of part that allows an actor to act while he or she is acting. Mm-hmm. Matt Damon, Leonardo DiCaprio, I think you could argue they've given some of their best performances as these types of figures. I'd say Joan Crawford's Crystal Allen in The Women is a good example from the classic era. So before we get to the important stuff about Judas and the Black Messiah, Adam, I want to hear what you thought of Stanfield. Is his Bill O'Neill one of the great screen weasels, or maybe you read his character differently? Hmm. Well, if this is a capital I important movie, is this a capital R important review? Um, I'm not going to put that burden on ourselves. No. (laughs) Good. Please, let's not. You know, it didn't occur to me until you framed it this way, but you know who else is an all-time great movie weasel? Hmm. The aforementioned Betty Davis is Leslie Crosby in the letter. I know. It kind of came it's, together. <laughs> it's a fun comparison. Obviously, couldn't be more different characters, settings, subjects, and performers. But there's scarcely a moment in the letter where Leslie isn't being duplicitous. Her entire mm. life is a lie. Yet, she's always 100% composed and in yeah. control. Yeah. Because as dishonest as she is, She's always truthful or reverse it as loose with the truth as she is. She's always honest. She believes everything she is saying and doing because she believes she is right and justified all the time. There is zero guilt. Mm -hmm. And then you've got Bill O'Neill, who is equally dishonest, but has a much shakier grasp on the truth. And with Stanfield, that shakiness is literal as much as it's figurative. You, You almost always feel... Like he's completely out of control, even when he's doing everything in his power to hold it in. And you mentioned some of those other movie archetypes that we've seen, characters who are living that double life. And almost always, they're able to act their way out of a tense situation because they're able to project that sense of conviction. Stanfield almost seems to lean into not being totally believable. It's like, how far can I push this? How much can I sort of subvert audience expectations, which I really do respect. And I love watching him as a performer. I will say though, that what becomes difficult or became difficult for me is that Bill is so slippery. He has so little sense of self that there's almost no self at all. He's kind of a blank slate and maybe it's unfair expectations on my part, Josh, Because of the title, because of a movie we revisited recently as part of our 8 from 84 series, we talked about Amadeus and made some of these same comparisons then. But Bill, at least how he's presented here, isn't Salieri. He isn't Burr to Hamilton. He's not Judas to Jesus in My Beloved Jesus Christ Superstar either. I never truly felt the rivalry, that push-pull of the love-hate. And I will grant that it's easier in those other stories I mentioned because the two people in conflict are so similar. They have similar ambitions. They do similar things. One sees the other and recognizes in themselves 
that they're a fraud. But Bill doesn't want to be Fred Hampton. I do think he longs to have the same sense of identity and peace with himself and to just have conviction about anything (laughs) the way Fred has conviction about everything. But that is a hard thing to convey narratively. And I, I just never really felt that conflict the way I wanted it between the two men within Bill himself. He's out for himself and he mostly seems motivated by money and fear versus that that reckoning, that becoming disillusioned with what he's doing and the path he's going down. So that's my reservation with Judas and the Black Messiah. Well, it might be a case of, you know, bringing that construct onto a film that didn't set out to play with it. You know, I can see mm-hmm. those parallels with Amadeus, but I don't know that the movie we got is that interested in a similar relationship between uh, Hampton and O'Neill. I would argue that the search for self is what makes this not only a great performance from Stanfield, but distinct, as you say, from the one Betty Davis gives in the letter, because he isn't sure. He gets pulled into this when he gets nabbed by the FBI early in the movie, interestingly, for already posing as an FBI agent mm-hmm. in an attempt to steal a car. So I like that there's a layer to him in this already before he gets involved with the Panthers. Um, so he gets pulled into it. And in a way, here's what makes this also what makes this so great for me is not just that Stanfield is weaselly, but he finds the humanity in the weasel, too. And it's because O'Neill is trapped by the very forces um, that in a way are trying to entrap Hampton, right? These abusive law enforcement forces. O'Neill finds Mm -hmm. him um, caught in the middle there as well. Now he negotiates it obviously differently. And there is absolutely a selfish motivation involved here. That's why I feel like comfortable calling him a weasel because there, yeah, he's, he's put in this position, but as I said, we already see that he's going to play these angles when he can in his life. And there is the motivation of making money. We don't really know if O'Neill could have gotten out at one point if he had wanted to, but he definitely seems to make the choice to pursue it further because there's more money in it. Um, and so I really like that element that he brought. We're constantly trying to figure out, here's a guy we understand didn't really have, you know, fervent politics when he got into this, Mm -hmm. um, but starts to realize what is at stake. And it's a push and pull for me. Is this a guy who's going to play the weasel for money and to, to save his own skin from the feds? Or is this a guy who, after hearing these many speeches from Hampton, is that rhetoric, which we totally get given how great Kaluuya is, is that yeah. rhetoric starting to sink in? Is he starting to change? Is, is change? is he starting to find a sense of himself? And then what is he going to do? Because now he's trapped in a third way. Um, and I thought that was one of the fascinating tensions going throughout the movie. We kind of see a hint of that when he steps up after the police burned down the Black Panther headquarters in Chicago. Mm-hmm. He steps up to lead the, um, you know, the renovation of it, the rebuilding of it. And the way it's presented, it's not just so he can further ingratiate himself. It's because it has come to feel important to him. I don't know that at the end of the movie, we get a full sense of where O'Neill thinks his true self is, but I don't see that as a fault. Um, and then to go back to just kind of the weasel scenes, as you were talking about, you know, this, this high wire act that he's trying to, to walk, he does do it distinctly where there isn't that assurance as you describe. That's a great way to put it. I think of the scene where they're having a conversation about another rat in another chapter who's been yeah. found out. <laughs> and what does Bill do? He doubles down. He yeah, almost he like overdoes it. He overdoes it by exclaiming about the violence he would inflict on somebody. Right. And you can see that the panic 
that O'Neill is feeling inside about what if they find out about me, he kind of twists into performance and it becomes this super heightened performance. Mm-hmm. And and Stanfield is just the perfect actor for that because he's a guy who in so many performances has this low-key energy, but there's there's also kind of something reverberating inside, like a little bit of a panic um, that, that this part uses so beautifully. Yeah. I, I think that's why his, you know, Andre and Get Out is such a perfect Stanfield performance. Maybe the representative one, because it's almost a cameo, but it's this guy who's cool on the inside screaming, or cool on the outside, I should say, screaming on the inside. And I think that's what that's what mm-hmm. O'Neill's trying to negotiate throughout this movie. I agree with you that that scene rebuilding the headquarters is the one that gets closest to more of what I was looking for, I think. Really seeing in Bill that sense of purpose that he finally finds. And so then having to reconcile that sense of purpose and that belief and maybe some newfound conviction with what he knows he is doing or maybe is going to be asked to do. But in terms of really starting to realize, as you put it, what is at stake, I sense that less than you, Josh. And I think that's partly because deep in the film, I still felt like I was watching scene after scene where all that was really happening is him successfully escaping scenes or fooling people, which doesn't really add anything new to consider about him. It's like if Donnie Brasco was mostly Donnie trying not to get caught instead of the existential crisis he's suffering through. So I, I needed a little bit more of the existential crisis. Sounds like you well, what about got the, it. But what about the scene that um, where Jesse Plemons as his FBI handler, Roy Mitchell is at a rally, a black Panther rally in the yeah. back yeah. watching him respond to a speech that Hampton is giving, I think you see that existential angst all over Stanfield's face. And and that's exactly what Roy calls him on. He's like, hey, yeah. he says something to the effect, like, I, I'm i getting a little worried here. You're starting, I know. You're starting to buy this. It's a hard thing to express, but there's an arc to it that I didn't feel as opposed to hmm. recognizing those individual moments. And maybe the best way I can sum up why I felt something is off the most interesting character revelation about bill occurs in the epilogue and I won't give it away, but that that, was something. Yeah. Yeah. It's something, it's something I actually kind of regret maybe wasn't more somehow. And I don't mean the actual details, but the, the idea and the thought that it provokes, I wish was maybe more woven into the film Hmm. even more than they clearly tried to. The other part is the more interesting dynamic in this movie and remember, this is a film called Judas and the Black Messiah. Isn't really for me between Bill and Fred. It's between Bill and Roy. Yeah, I'd agree. Agent. And I will give the movie credit for having the depth of that character and not just making Roy this third party who's a purely malevolent force and is there to kind of drive the plot forward. But that character even gets maybe the more dramatically compelling scene showing his crisis of self, which is when he's being, well interrogated mostly by his boss, J. Edgar Hoover. And in that scene, we recognize that, oh, Hoover owns him Mm. the same way he owns Bill. He's just a pawn in this, just like Bill is. And you see that dawning all over Plemons' face. But I wish I'd gotten more of that, actually, with Bill and Stanfield instead of the FBI agent and Plemons. That's a great scene. And it's it's also an example of maybe where this search for a sense of self is something that Roy is struggling with too, because he's Plummins is very oily, but there's also moments where you kind of buy the earnestness and he tries to walk this line, 
you know, when he recruits Bill, it's kind of under the guise of, listen, I've I've uh, in my past, I've prosecuted the KKK. He's like, I'm just seeing this as a, a law and order matter. It's not a yep. race thing for me. Right. And uh-huh. so so you kind of wonder, is that is that part of his sales pitch? Does some part of him believe that? Is that the way he justifies to himself some of the choices he makes as an right. FBI agent? So I think that that conflict with the inner self is something that Roy is struggling with, too. And I do think it's a strength of the film that they make room for that. Can I ask you what you made of? Martin Sheen and his makeup as J. Edgar Hoover? Yeah, you know, it, it gave me little flashbacks to DiCaprio <laughs> as J. Edgar Hoover um, in the Eastwood film. Not a strength, you know? And it's a hard thing because when you're going to do that, you know you're going to come under such scrutiny, whether it's visual effects that are used or makeup work. Um, and it's it's almost, you're almost better off just somehow letting the actor use their face as it is and identify the character in some other way and yeah. let them give uh, a different, let the acting do the depicting a little yes. bit more, because I think in this case it, it doesn't really, it's distracting. It's distracting. It is distracting. And does Jagger Hoover in the year 2021 loom large enough that audiences need to feel like they're watching someone who is actually representing him and mimicking him as he is. I mean, I think Martin Sheen could have played Jagger Hoover looking just like Martin Sheen. Yes. And not only would it have been less distracting, but probably would have been equally as believable. I almost wonder it's so off putting. <laughs> I almost wondered if for Sheen, it was like an acting thing. It was an acting exercise where he couldn't even find his way into the character mm. unless he had that makeup on and those hmm. contacts in and kind of transformed himself truly into J. Edgar Hoover. It's a small part of the film, even though he does loom over the film and some of the characters in a lot of ways. But I was curious if you felt about it the same way I did. We should then obviously talk about Kaluuya as Fred Hampton. And I think I'll go back to what we were saying about that sense of self. That's a hard thing to describe here as a reviewer. It's a hard thing maybe to embody as well. Just that sense of confidence doesn't mean you don't have doubts, doesn't mean you aren't vulnerable. And Kaluuya brings all that in, especially in his quieter moments and especially when he's not on the stage. But especially when he's on the stage, there's never a doubt in his mind about what he's saying, why he's saying it who he is and how he thinks he can bring about change in his community. There is something about Kaluuya's physical presence. He He's imposing, and I can't decide, honestly, Josh, if he acts more like he's aware of his size and that presence, and he carries that with him, like when he walks into what he knows is clearly a hostile situation with a gang in Chicago, or is it more like, actually, he's not aware of it at all? There's almost this teddy bear quality to him. And mm-hmm. because he's not aware of it, there's nothing forced about who he is at any point. Yeah, I think he's great. And I think what you're describing is that it's he's the opposite of Bill in so many yes. ways. And I think that's, that's what I think that's what the pairing here. It's not so much about their relationship to me, but they're used as um, d- different sides of a similar coin. And it is this charismatic confidence that distinguishes his Hampton from Stanfield's bill. Uh, there is never a doubt, as you say, and it is how he carries himself. He's he's like this burly boulder of a man, you know? I I think of Kaluuya as a big guy, but not like what we get here. Right. Um, and it is in how he moves as well. I like how 
that stillness he brings also pairs against his speeches, which which have this rat-a-tat-tat ferocity to them. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a confidence behind those words that comes with that. Um, and I think, as you said, the quieter moments are key here because we also get to that point, uh, a nice little aside where he's listening to, I think it's Malcolm X on a record, Love a speech, scene. right? And he's, he's, repeat, he's by himself kind of repeating the cadences um, and working on his own flavor of presenting his, his material. And so I think that's crucial to show that this isn't just kind of naive confidence. It's a confidence born out of hard work, out of care. Yes. He's earned it and he feels like he's earned it in his own mind. And so he carries that forward when he's in front of people. Um, and I think we also get, you know, the little moments that involve um, the woman, the poet who comes to join the Panthers and become his partner, eventually the mother of his child, played by Dominique Fishback, the character's she's so name. Good. She's amazing. Character's name is Deborah Johnson. And yeah, Fishback here, it, it could be one of those, you know, in other biopics, kind of the thankless role of the woman in this relationship. And she certainly gets less screen time, but I think what she does with it, um, you know, it makes you want her to have so much more screen time. And this could easily have been a movie about their relationship, you know, and sort of the dawning awareness that uh, Deborah has as a poet, as a black woman, as she joins this cause, that could have been its own movie. And they get, I was just going to say that she's not just a sidekick. I'd watch that film. Exactly. And and I think there's a moment during one of his speeches where you can see the conflict on her face where she's mm-hmm. totally buying in what he's selling, but he's also selling something about the fact that he's willing to die. And so she realizes what that means for the family they're mm-hmm. about to start. So I remember seeing Fishback in um, a small movie, might have given it a golden brick nod at one point, Night Comes On, um, which she had uh, you know the lead role in that. And she was very impressive and follows up on that here as well. I like that you mentioned that rat-a-tat style of speaking because, again, he could be kind of shy and he can be unassuming. And then as soon as he gets up on stage, he's so commanding. And the way Kaluuya renders lines as Fred Hampton, he punctuates certain words in such an interesting staccato way that not only is it powerful, but it's just it's fun to listen to. It's it's rhythmic in a way that you recognize how he could captivate any audience he is speaking to. So Shaka King, the director here, haven't seen his previous feature, Newly Weeds, I think, from what I understand, a very different type of film. But I was kind of impressed by the way he was able to make history alive in this movie. So it is not, um, you know, we're talking about historical dramas, biopics. They can be that can be a stuffy genre. And I don't think we get that here. Uh, I think maybe the liveliest scene is the early one where we see Bill try to pose as an FBI agent yeah. and and steal that car. He kind of walks into a bar with a, with a trench coat and he's got a real uh, swagger to him. But even throughout much of the rest of the movie, King's camera is, is always seems to be on the prowl. So it's often circling mm-hmm. characters. And I think it's just lends to it. it again, it, it takes the movie out of the past, even though that's where the plot is. And we can see how it's relevant today. We can see, further understand if you're not a member of the black community how for decades the police can be seen as an occupying force rather than public servants Um, and the filmmaking connects how that was true then with what we've seen in the last year or so and brings them together by making it not again this this stuffy historical re-dramatization but something that has a a a pulse that we can feel today I think you're exactly right. There is sometimes a sense with biopics, especially 
capital I important ones. And again, maybe this one shouldn't even be described as a biopic, but an important film like this one set in the past where almost it can be shot too reverentially and it feels like everything is kind of trapped in amber. And there's never a sense of that here. That's because of the direction. It's also because of obviously the cinematography here, Sean Bobbitt, who is one of the best shot hunger for Steve McQueen, 12 years a slave, the place beyond the pines as well. So I agree. The cinematography here is really one of the strengths of Judas and the black Messiah. It is currently playing in limited release and exclusively on HBO max. If you see it and agree or disagree with our takes, you can email us feedback at filmspotting.net. Let's get to that other screen weasel, Betty Davis, in the letter. We'll kick off our 40s noir marathon and play a little massacre theater when we come back. Stay with us. Keeps them alive for three days. Then he shoots them, skins them, and dumps them. A rookie FBI agent is on his trail. He's got real physical strength, cautious, precise, and he's never impulsive. He'll never stop. Silence of the Lambs, released on February 14th, Valentine's Day, 1991, 30 years ago this week. Josh, I'm guessing that might have been a date night for a young Josh and Debbie back in the day. Have I not told my Silence of the Lambs date night story on the show? I don't know if you have. Okay, well, here here we go. Yeah, of course we were going to see Silence of the Lambs, the biggest movie at that time. Uh, this was high school for us. We had tickets for the late show at the local multiplex. My parents were going to the early show. So they came out of the Silence of the Lambs. And I got to say, my parents, not like they didn't police. They were discerning about what we watched as mm-hmm. kids, but they were not like moral police um, about these things. Yet something about Silence of the Lambs freaked them out. They came out of the theater, waited in the parking lot till Debbie <laughs> and I you? pulled in and said, listen, you guys, like, we don't want you seeing this movie. I've And I've, I've never really found out exactly what it was. I don't even know if my dad would remember if I asked him, but what it was about silence, we could probably guess that so disturbed them. They were like, yeah, you guys take your date elsewhere. <laughs> so what do we do? Well, of course, I'm not going to miss silence of the lands. We say, okay, uh, sure. Get in the car, drive around the back of the theater, <laughs> wait five minutes, drive back around park, go in and see Silence of the Lambs. So um, that's about as rebellious as it got for me, I was going to say, the most rebel move of a young Josh Larson's life, maybe yeah. his entire life. I was so worried you were going to say, so we didn't go. Oh, I wasn't missing that. I love it. Here's a funny bit of symmetry here. February 14th, 1991 would be the last Valentine's Day I spent without Sarah. 
Oh, wow. Okay. So the next so, year was when your life changed. Within within that year, 1991. There you go. We started dating. So next week on the show, we will have a Sacred Cow review of Jonathan Demme's Best Picture winner, 30th anniversary. Of course, a good enough reason to revisit the movie. But another reason we decided to do it is because The Father is coming out in a few weeks, starring Anthony Hopkins. And we thought it would be a good time to do a top five Hopkins performances He's a likely Oscar nominee, maybe even another Oscar winner for The Father. I have seen this one. I did my due diligence when we were cramming in things at the end of the year and voting in our various critics groups. Josh, have you had a chance to see it yet? No. And now that you say that, I think my screening link for it just expired. So I'm going to have to see if I can get another one. I haven't been putting it off, you know, because I don't want to see it. I've been doing a little Hopkins homework for that top Mm -hmm. five. So watched Remains of the Day this week. Another one, Adam, that I'd never seen before. I I know. I think, but you know what I was thinking about this and Howard's End, I didn't see either. I think Mm -hmm. when both of those came out, I was probably trying to be like, a cool cinephile and those yeah, seemed like merchant ivory. Yeah. Like I don't need time for those stuffy period costume dramas. So I think I just skipped them and, and never got around to them. So definitely I'm going to try to do that. And then, yeah, we'll obviously catch up with the father too. Well, this is how uncool I was and uncool a cinephile. I was at that age. I saw that stuffy, <laughs> chamber drama remains of the day and just thought it was the greatest and you know what you were right it's amazing good silence of the lambs also kind of a surprise fourth place finisher a couple years ago we did our 90s edition of film spotting madness pretty elite company there goodfellas pulp fiction and the madness winner fargo so yes people do love this movie and i don't remember the last time i saw the silence of the Lambs, so i'm very eager for this revisit speaking of madness we will be kicking off 2021 film spotting madness next week it's our play-in round our biggest baddest play-in round ever sam has maybe gone a little crazy more than usual no but josh i sanctioned it so i am complicit and he and i still have some work to do before we're ready to present those brackets next week but we're going to pick the best film of the 1980s and i think listeners will enjoy the ride so do you have to shave the the play in bracket down from like 400 titles to what? What, what are you guys looking at here? Are, are you joking? Because that's basically I'm, it. I'm not joking. <laughs> I know I'm not joking. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We may have 400 titles just in the play in rounds. Also next week, results of the current film spotting poll. We asked, what is your favorite solo road trip movie? Josh, we gave them these options. David Lynch's The Straight Story, Sean Penn's Into the Wild, Kelly Reichert's Wendy and Lucy. Agnes Varda's Vagabond, and of course, the option of Other. Into the Wild, maybe as expected with the early lead, but there's clearly a lot of love for all of these films. We talked about how difficult the choice was last week. I ultimately went with Varda's Vagabond. I think you came around maybe to that as well, Josh, after wrestling with a few. You love Into the Wild, your favorite film of that year, wasn't it? It was. Not a bad pick, not a bad choice in this poll. So, yeah, any vote justifiable. You can vote now and leave a comment at filmspotting.net. Hi, are you, Maud? Yes. Dear God, it takes nothing special to mop up after the decrepit and the dying. Can you feel that? Yep, yep, yep. But to save a soul, that's quite something. 
That's from the new religious horror film St. Maud. It's the feature debut of writer-director Rose Glass. It premiered all the way back at the 2019 Toronto Film Festival and spent 2020 on the virtual fest circuit. Starting this weekend, though, it's available to stream exclusively on Epics. You gave it a brief mention a couple of weeks ago, a brief but provocative mention a couple of weeks ago here on the show, Josh, when it opened in limited release. Let's make it official, though. You are nominating St. Maud for the 2021 Golden Brick? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it is a debut, as you mentioned, and uh, the filmmaking vision here is just so distinct by by Rose Glass. Um, the base, the basic plot is St. Maud, the title character played by Morphid Clark. She's this very pious palliative care nurse, and her latest client is a former dancer who has a terminal case of lymphoma. She lives in this mansion pretty much alone. She's confined to a wheelchair. And um, as Amanda, the patient played by Jennifer Ely, she begins to ask Maud about her faith. She notices she wears a cross dangling uh, from her neck during one of their exercises. And Maud takes this interest as um, impetus to essentially save Amanda's soul. Um, and that's where the movie starts to go a little haywire in good ways as Maud has these visions where the filmmaking really comes to the forefront. There is a levitation scene here that reminded me of, say, Andre Tarkovsky's uh, The Sacrifice or Paul Schrader's First Reformed. We remember moments from those movies that are similar. There is another vision she has where Maude is going up the stairs of this mansion and the lights start throbbing and she almost performs... As I said, Amanda's a former dancer, and she's watched some of her dance videos when she was younger. And Maude almost performs this bizarre dance going up the stairs where she's also in this trance. Um, and again, Glass just puts us so in her head in these moments, including the the really astonishing finale um, that definitely qualifies her for Golden Brick consideration. Now, the reservation that I'm, I'm still kind of struggling with, even though I recommend the movie overall and, and do appreciate it, is this idea of um, how interested is the movie actually in Maud's faith? Or if it's not at all, um, and I don't want to spoil too many things, but we we get a sense that a lot of this might just be in Maud's head. If Maud is suffering from some sort of mental illness, um, is it kind of both using that and the religious elements just to give us some of these great ghastly thrills? Uh, and it's similar to the question, you know, I think we've talked about in regards to the exorcist I have, Adam, one of my reservations there is, is are these religious ideas um, really something the movie wants to explore or is it kind of just being used for for something else? It's just interesting because Maude, we never see anyone else in the, We don't know where her faith really comes from. She doesn't, you know, she, we don't see that she was raised in the church in some way that's led her to believe as she does. So there's almost a hole at the center of the film there that might be a fault for some people or that vacuum might be seen as a plus where you can kind of fill that in yourself. So I love to, I can't wait till more people see this um, hmm. and kind of hear different takes on it, but absolutely a distinct vision and, um, you know, an early entry for one of the best horror films of 2021. Nice. St. Maud is available to stream exclusively on Epics, and we will add it to our page over at filmspotting.net slash bricks. We have a couple giveaways here, Josh. The new 
planet-killing comet movie. It's racing towards Earth. Greenland, I'm sure you've seen some comments on this. I've seen a lot of positive comments about it on Twitter. It stars Gerard Butler, Morena Bakarin, and Scott Glenn, certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes. And as that comet is racing towards Earth, a father and his family have to make a perilous journey to their only hope for sanctuary. Greenland is available today on digital Blu-ray and DVD. It includes deleted scenes, feature commentary with the director, Rick Romanois, and much more. We've got five copies of those Blu-rays to give away, Josh, to our listeners, and I'm just going to throw it out there. All they have to do, email feedback at filmspotting.net, put Greenland in the subject line, and tell us what's your favorite apocalypse slash disaster movie. Not post-apocalypse. That's its own genre. Mm. But the world is coming to an end movie. In the movie. I want to hear it. In the movie. Got it. Okay. We also have some passes for an upcoming virtual screening. The film, The Mauritanian. This is about a detainee at the Guantanamo Bay Detention Center who is held without charges for over a decade and seeks help from a defense attorney for his release. The Mauritanian stars Tahar Rahim, Benedict Cumberbatch, and Jodie Foster. And the director is Kevin McDonald, who made The Very Good, The Last King of Scotland a number of years ago. The screening for The Mauritanian is Wednesday, February 24th. That's at 7 p.m. Central. So if you're interested in being a part of that, go to the events page at filmspotting.net for more information. That's filmspotting.net slash events. I mean, this show is just such a good one, Josh. You've told me how right I was about Remains of the Day, and you just called The Last King of Scotland, one of my beloved films of that year. I think 2006, very good. Yeah, well, I'm just, just aligned. To, I'm just here to make you feel good, Adam. <laughs> this week over on our sister podcast, The Next Picture Show, Lady Killers Part 2, Promising Young Woman and American Psycho. And then I love this pairing. I mean, two movies that really... Couldn't be more dissimilar in tone, but obviously very connected. Nomadland and Albert Brooks lost in America from 1980. Yeah, I like that. <laughs> next next Picture Show hosts are Tasha Robinson, Keith Phipps, Scott Tobias, and Genevieve Kosky. New episodes of The Next Picture Show post every Tuesday. You can find them wherever you get your podcasts, and you can find more information at nextpictureshow.net. Over at Patreon. You can support Film Spotting by becoming a member of the Film Spotting family. For $5 a month, you get ad-free episodes, you get a merch discount, you get early show downloads, and you get to participate in exclusive events like our monthly trivia spotting tickets for our February 20th trivia spotting. Sold out in, I don't know, about eight hours, Josh. And we've got four, at least four, first-time special guest captains. So... That will breathe some new energy into trivia spotting as well. Do you want to share with the listeners who they are, or that's uh, oh, it's it's going to be a surprise? Okay, I may not even tell you. (laughs) Great. (laughs) We also offer our monthly bonus episodes, and for the month of February, because we are anticipating that discussion of Silence of the Lambs and looking back on Anthony Hopkins' best performances, we thought we should rectify some blind spots. There are three major ones. Three performances of Hopkins that are usually in the list somewhere, top 10-ish of Hopkins' career, that we haven't seen. And those options are The Bounty, The Lion in Winter, and Magic. <laughs> and yes, <laughs> I, I didn't even know until I started researching this that Hopkins was the star of Magic. I only knew Magic as the movie that came out around 1978 that 
had that commercial that aired infamously on like a Saturday morning when a bunch of three and four year olds like me were sitting in front of the TV and I got absolutely terrified by it. When your heart begins to pound, when your mind begins to go, keep telling yourself it's only a movie. I've told that story on the show before, <laughs> apparently, Josh, because even though I want people to vote for magic, I want to force myself to confront yes. the horror. Face your movie. fears. Face your fears, Adam. Based on the comments and the voting, everybody is so caring and concerning and they're looking out for me and they don't want to subject me to it. So oh, my gosh. For magic. Oh, this is ridiculous. <laughs> it has to be magic. Let me just read the plot synopsis. Yes. A ventriloquist is at the mercy of his vicious dummy while he tries to renew a romance with his high school sweetheart. I mean, yes. how can we not watch that movie, Adam, for an Anthony Hopkins top five? Interestingly, I mean, if you think this is, and maybe it is schlock, I don't know. We haven't seen it. But if you're assuming that, the screenplay by William Goldman, based on his novel, the director here, Richard Attenborough. Sir Richard <laughs> Sir, Attenborough. Sir Richard and the vicious ventriloquist dummy movie. So right. please, please let it be magic. Here's here's another reason you and I both want it to be magic. I think those two other films are over two hours long, like yeah. 215, two and a half. Yeah. Magic, a nice hour, 45 minutes. I mean, come on. I know. I know. Our listeners at this moment, Josh, they, they have the best intentions, not only because they're trying to keep me from being a scaredy cat, but- they also seem to adore the line in winter. It's close. Right now, the bounty only has 16% of the vote. The line in winter is leading with 47% magic. Oh. Not too far behind with 37%. There's still three days left, Josh, and maybe, maybe magic. Maybe magic. Magic. For magic. <laughs> also, we will celebrate reaching 1,000 patrons with a virtual watch party available to all film spotting family members March 6th. We're going to celebrate the 16th anniversary of film spotting with what else? Top Gun. Yes. Now, Top Gun, <laughs> I revisited a couple years ago, so it's somewhat yeah. fresh in my mind. Have you seen it since it defined your youth, Adam? I don't think I have, other than, of course, there have been times over the years where it plays on TNT or TBS, and you kind of get caught up in a few scenes. But a start-to-finish watch of Top Gun probably hasn't happened for me since 1987. Okay, here's your chance. Yep. Patreon.com slash filmspotting is where you can sign up for all those shenanigans. Speaking of which, let's play Massacre Theater, the part of the show where we perform a scene and you get a chance at winning a film spotting t-shirt. A couple weeks ago, Adam and I massacred this scene. You're not thinking I'm someone else. I know you are not. Or that we've met before? I know we have not. I felt I knew something never before was going to happen. Had to happen, but this is so much more. My hands are cold. Yours too. So warm. So beautiful. Beautiful. That was very good. Actors, Natalie Wood and Richard Bamer in 1961's West Side Story. I'm sure they're... I'm sure they're very good. Maybe not their finest moment here. Written by Ernest Lehman, based on the musical book by Arthur Lawrence. Leonard Bernstein and Stephen Sondheim were the composer and lyricist. And maybe William Shakespeare deserves a little story credit sure. for this one. The director was Robert Wise. 
Uh, who do we want to credit for those specific lines in How Massacre Theater, Adam? Along with that massacre, we also had our 2021 movie preview. So why that scene from West Side Story? Tim in Kansas City, Missouri says, I could feel the gym fade away as you looked lovingly into each other's eyes while reproducing Maria and Tony's conversation from West Side Story. If only us listeners could be able to see you rock those dance moves. The connections are as obvious as West Side Story's connection to Romeo and Juliet. As this is a 2021 preview, Spielberg's remake of West Side Story is hopefully on its way finally. And yeah, In the Heights will probably make it irrelevant, but that is okay. Additionally, Tony and Maria are constantly looking toward a more hopeful future together throughout West Side Story, and we, the film spotting community, are looking forward to a more hopeful future as well. Thanks for keeping me in the know of movies during med school. Best of luck to you, Tim. Here's Abby Rowe in New York, New York. I just jumped for joy as I heard the newest Massacre Theater, as I actually recognized the film, which is West Side Story. To be fair, it's kind of a cheat for me, as I worked on a production of West Side Story in Tokyo back in 2019, and have therefore heard those famous lines of Tony and Maria meeting for the first time during our numerous rehearsals of the iconic Dance at the Gym. The connection to this week's show clearly is the new Spielberg remake of that classic film. But will Ansel Elgort and Rachel Zegler do a better job with those famous lines? We'll just have to wait and see. Thanks for all you do. I've been an avid film spotting listener since 2017 and can't wait for life to go back to normal so you can finally do your live show in New York. Can't wait. Thank you, Abby. John Rubenstein says, I grew up during the 50s and 60s in New York City and saw virtually every play and musical during that golden age on Broadway, including the original production of West Side Story with Larry Kirk, Carol Lawrence, and Cheetah Rivera. When that film came out, I must have seen it close to 20 times. I never thought Boehmer was a good casting choice for Tony, and although I love Natalie Wood just per se, I didn't think she really fit the role of Maria. They both tried their best, though, and although they were the Romeo and Juliet of the piece, they somehow didn't manage to ruin the film for me. I suffered through their performance performances again and again, wishing Jerome Robbins had told Boehmer not to walk like that and wishing Wood would just relax into it more. But the rest of the cast, especially Rita Moreno and Russ Tamlin, the dancing on the ruins of the old neighborhood that was soon to become Lincoln Center, the scope, the music of Leonard Bernstein and the lyrics of Stephen Sondheim, the huge and gripping orchestrations, the camera work and costuming, and the energy and commitment and talent of the actors slash dancers doing the astounding Robbins choreography. All that time and again burst into such great musical and emotional life that even the fact that the two central characters were the weakest links in the chain didn't prevent that movie from inspiring and exciting me every single time. But I absolutely do remember always cringing during that particular part of the scene, so warm, (laughs) that you guys actually played better than the two stars of the movie itself. Well, that's what Massacre Theater is all about, John, improving it's our way yeah. of improving classic yeah. works of art. Yes. Another <laughs> comment here from Lucia Laneve from Chantilly, Virginia. West Side Story, West Side Story. Although just from Adam's surprisingly creepy performance, I thought Josh might have been falling in love at first sight with Hannibal Lecter. <laughs> I wasn't going for creepy, but I can see that, Lucia. Ben Collar in East Brunswick, New Jersey says, Like Cat, film spotting PA, I knew it with the first line. A movie that I somehow completely adore, despite it having two of the least charismatic lead performances in any film. Back in the day, my high school, not a performing arts high school, did West Side Story, and our medium talent at best and white as hell Tony and Maria had exponentially more chemistry than Richard Boehmer and Natalie Wood. Still one of my favorite movies, and that will be the end of the Tony and Maria. Maria slander on film. Wow. Wow. Yeah, that was not nice. Reach in to the kind of brimming film spotting hat. Quick note, Josh, West Side Story, I think, is the first movie in the history of film spotting to be massacred three times. And I think now by every host. 
Oh, well, see, so that, that should be allowed. I think it should be allowed. <laughs> Everyone should get a shot yeah. at a classic it, movie. It's got a place in the Film Spotting Massacre Theater pantheon, and it's well-deserved. Reach into that hat, pick out this week's winner. The winner is Jackson Augustine from Roy, Utah. Congratulations, Jackson. Email feedback at filmspotting.net, and we will set you up with your very own Film Spotting t-shirt. Martin, look at me. I am looking at you. Now look at me the way I'm looking at you. Put it in your eyes. You're mine, asshole, without saying it. How about this? What are you telling me? That you're sleepy? That you want to go to bed? As we move on to this week's edition of Massacre Theater, I wonder, Josh, if we need to set a rule that you can't, within one scene, have to change so many swear words <laughs> to other phrases and so many names to other names to throw people off the scent. Because yeah. this one may be a hard one to follow. It's going to be hard enough for us to perform. It's kind of a fantastic Mr. Fox version. There's there's a little bit of cussing, some <laughs> yes. cussing going on here. So There is. Okay, so with that said, obviously it does connect to one of the topics we're discussing on this week's show. I started off, it looks like, you're going to give me the action. And action. I want to know what you got going on down here. I don't understand, Vinny. You want to know about every half-ass scam going on Mountain That's right. Look. I don't mean any disrespect. I know you're a skipper and I'm a nobody, but uh, I can't do that to Ricky. Listen to me, you clock stuffer. I'll eat your fuzzy bolts for breakfast, you understand me? Every fussing one of you. This is life or death. Not a fussing game, Jackie. This is my say-so. Now you tell me. Can't do it, Vinny. How about if I... How about if I fuss and whack you here and now? And <laughs> scene. <laughs> What is a clock stuffer? <laughs> I I love that Sam came up with that. <laughs> and fuzzy as a bolts. Replacement. And fuzzy bolts. Now we know what Sam is doing around the Van Halgren home when he stubs yes. his toe. <laughs> <laughs> like I can totally somehow, picture it. <laughs> if you somehow know what film we just massacred, email the movie's title along with your name and location to feedback at filmspotting.net. The deadline is Monday, February 22nd. The winner will be selected randomly from all the correct entries and announced in a couple of fussing weeks. You've been watching me all evening. I'm responsible for you to the court. No, that isn't it. You've been... what? Trying to read my thoughts. I'm trying to understand you. Why? Because I'm so, so evil. That's it, isn't it? Betty Davis and James Stevenson in a clip there from 1940s The Letter, directed by William Wyler. It's the first film in our 40s noir marathon. And this marathon, very much a 40s noir blind spots marathon, as these marathons should be. Because when you think about the big titles from this genre and time period. It's, of course, The Big Sleep. It's Double Indemnity. It's The Maltese Falcon. It's Out of the Past. We've both seen those, and in some of those cases, we've already discussed them here on the show as part of a previous marathon. So along with the letter, here are the titles we have chosen to tackle. This Gun for Hire, that's from 42, directed by Frank Tuttle with Veronica Lake and Robert Preston. 1944's Laura, directed by Otto Preminger with Gene Tierney and Dana Andrews. Then we'll get to Detour from 1945, directed by Edgar G. Ulmer. 
Orson Welles' The Lady from Shanghai is on the docket, a Welles movie neither of us have seen, from 47 with Welles and Rita Hayworth. And then we'll finish out the marathon with 1949's White Heat, directed by Raoul Walsh and starring James Cagney. All these titles, pretty available to rent on most platforms. And to get that full lineup, just go to filmspotting.net slash marathons. So the letter, the second of three Wyler Davis collaborations, 1938's Jezebel was the first. That was the standout picture of our recent Betty Davis marathon here on Film Spotting. 1941's The Little Foxes, the third Davis was Oscar nominated for all three. The letter is set in British run Malaysia in the early 1900s. Davis's husband, played by Herbert Marshall, runs a rubber plantation. We do see in the opening scene, Davis shoot a man in cold blood and claim that he tried to assault her. But soon, a letter emerges that puts her motives into question. James Stevenson, also Oscar-nominated for Best Supporting Actor, plays Davis's lawyer. At the top of the show, you mentioned that this is a very unsympathetic Betty Davis performance. I'm not sure there's any other kind of Betty Davis performance. <laughs> I know throughout that marathon, we we talked about that a lot, those kind of different degrees and the nuances to her villainy at times and just how much sympathy we had for her as characters, never losing sight of, of course, how magnetic she is to watch on screen, regardless of how sympathetic she might be. What did you make of her character here, Leslie Crosby? Oh, she's just fascinating and definitely sits alongside um, Jezebel, uh, the character she plays there. There's some similarities I want to get to later um, in terms of how uh, both movies handle the non-white characters in them, um, but also of human bondage. You know, that mm-hmm. that's what we started our marathon with. And Davis is unsympathetic there as well. But as you said, that doesn't mean she's uninteresting uh, or not complicated. Um, and in some cases, that's the degrees of her performance is where where might we find sympathy? Where is she encouraging us to find sympathy, have sympathy with these characters? That's where her real talent comes. In this one, I don't know that she or Leslie care <laughs> if anyone has sympathy for her. I think that's maybe the hallmark of this character is that she right away we sniff something's amiss, right? That's not a spo- mm-hmm. a spoiler. And she almost doesn't care if anyone really believes her as long as she still gets away with it. And that is how she carries herself in this movie. I think of that moment where at this point she's in jail awaiting trial. Someone asks her if she's nervous about testifying and she just says, I'm looking forward to it. (laughs) And she's, you know, she's unbothered by this whole thing. And maybe that's what makes you, makes her the most maddening is not that she lies, not that she killed a man, not the infidelity we learn about later, but that she's unbothered. This just kind of falls off her. She is an ultimate woman of privilege in this movie exercising the power she has and it's fascinating to watch this film you know in an era where we um, rightly talk about believe women right when when we hear abuse and assault claims to take those seriously Um, and this is almost the opposite because leslie is this figure of power and privilege the movie already the characters in the movie already assume she's in danger by the fact that she's often alone in this bungalow with the quote unquote natives lurking about mm-hmm. so she's been pre-victimized by this colonial racism and she uses that to her advantage to cuz how could she ever be a perpetrator right, right. and yeah. and that is how davis plays it she commits fully to that we can get into at the end you know, what sort of move we think her character makes away from that. But for most of the film, that's how she plays it. And it's just fascinating to watch. 
yeah, that dynamic, the racial dynamic at play here and the power dynamic is one we can definitely talk more about. But in terms of Davis's performance, I mean, there's a scene, she's just killed this guy and yet they're sitting down to this nice meal and she either turns to Joyce or to the constable and says, would I have to be arrested? And she flashes those those Betty Davis eyes just out of the, the corners, kind of looks sideways. And what are you going to say to that? I mean, mm-hmm. you're going to say, yes, you are. No, you're going to play along. And she is just always in a position of power somehow within this movie. And that really is the key to the letter, I think, in a lot of ways, even though kind of like of Human Bondage, the movie we did start our Davis marathon with. She's kind of a supporting player here. I mean, she's the star because it's 1940 and she's Betty Davis and she steals the movie. But she's, again, a character who's mostly just provoking another man's kind of downfall and Hmm. redemption. And I also think the most interesting character journey in this film is James Stevenson's as Joyce. It's it's his illicit activity that is going against all the principles of his profession, against the principles of himself as an honest man, which he describes himself as. And I actually was curious for your sense of why you think watching the letter, he helps her. If he is such an honest man, why does he follow through and perform those illicit activities? There's a lot of different potential reasons, but maybe there's one obvious one. Um, well, I, I don't think it's that he's attracted to her necessarily, if that's what you're hinting at. I think those tensions are at play, um, but I think it goes back to kind of the the structural systems at place that are so against him. I don't know that his honesty has ever been challenged by someone who is a woman in this position in society who, again, has, you know, the British power behind her in, mm-hmm. in, in British Malay. And that is where his honesty really gets tested. And I think this relates to, Adam, one question I kind of want to ask you is, you know, we're including this in a noir, 40s noir marathon. And it obviously has some elements, the the lighting, we can probably talk about the moon coming through those blinds um, and there's a murder at play. But I was watching this thinking, okay, this is still kind of distinct from what we normally think of as noir. So what, what might make it noir? And I think it's, I think it's Stephenson's character because he is the private eye here who's trying to yes. do the right thing. But what's what's the key? Uh, all those private eyes in noirs, most of them, they have limited means, right? They're not exactly the law. They're outside mm-hmm. of the law. They're somewhat complicit. They bend the law themselves often. Um, but usually the central conflict, it, conflict is how is this PI going to do, quote unquote, the right thing? And I think about that pause that Stevenson gives in the court case eventually. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I do I do think that Weiler, they kind of heighten that, play that up a little too much where there's a gasp from the crowd. Mm-hmm. And I don't know like that we needed it to be emphasized that way because we see no. in the performance that he's pausing himself and he sees a pathway there. This is the moment he could pursue the honest track um, and, and he, you know, doesn't necessarily go that way. So, yeah. so to me, that was how this is a noir. And then Davis, of course, is the femme fatale. She's sure speaks to what you're saying, which is often a supporting part. She's the manipulator here. She's pulling the strings of this plot that Stephenson is caught up in. Who's got the letter? Hammond's wife. Oh, 
Are you going to let them hang me? What do you mean by that, Leslie? You could get the letter. Do you think it's so easy to do away with unwelcome evidence? Surely nothing would have been said to you if... if the owner weren't quite prepared to sell it. To go back to the question of why Joyce helps her at all, I suppose the easiest answer is that they are family friends. He feels close to her husband, so he's going to do whatever he can to save him. She uses that against him, in fact, right? She says, That's true. Oh, he can't he can't ever learn about this. He trusts me so. So if he doesn't help her, he's hurting his friend. That's right? one of her most devious moves is when she pulls but, that out. Oh, totally. But there's other layers potentially to it as well, right? In terms of like maybe as honest as he is, he really has a desire to win. I mean, he says to Robert, the husband, we must get a hold of that letter. I don't think it's right, but I think it's expedient. Juries can sometimes be very stupid. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. it's like, let's not worry them with these details. It's inconvenient. Or is it an element of curiosity, almost like later in Double Indemnity, we're going to see Walter Neff, who uses this whole affair almost as a test of himself to see what he's capable of. I almost wonder if he just kind of wants to go down this path and see where it goes. And then you have to at least consider the notion of a sexual connection, right? Sure. Even though <laughs> there's almost no actual heat or sensuality on screen, I did feel it in the scene where they're alone together. They get everybody out of the house. Now, they're getting everybody out of the house because they're going to go do this drop of the letter and the money. So they're conniving together in this. But there's a moment when they're sitting next to each other and Joyce is giving her some looks. And you wonder if what he's thinking about is not just, am I going to compromise my principles and my integrity by following through on this? But am I about to engage in an affair with yeah. her as well? And it's in play. My it's certainly it's in, in play. play. Yep. Yeah. As a noir, though, I'm really glad you brought that up because... It's an odd one in some ways to start this marathon off with. And of course, I'm not suggesting that every noir checks all the boxes on all these conventions all the time. But, you know, in terms of a murder mystery, you said it. We know pretty early on who did it. And especially if you recognize that she's deceptive from the start, then it is what it is. There's no voiceover. There's no flashbacks. The plot is pretty straightforward here. The milieu, we're used to that urban environment. It's the city streets. That's obviously not the case here on these plantations and in the jungle. And you mentioned the way that Joyce's character is the closest thing to the hard-boiled detective. That's absolutely the case. But even that's different in the sense that he's this upstanding, stuffy lawyer. You said the means, right? Like That's the biggest difference there. But it's also that I think of the dark nights of these detective stories as being men who have already lost their innocence. They're soiled. Cynical. Yeah, Yeah. they're soiled from the very beginning and maybe there's a little redemption along the way. And here we've got a guy who starts out unsoiled, right? And becomes soiled as he progresses through the narrative. The other big thing is we're talking about film noir. We have to talk about the lighting. Yeah. You watch this film, mostly a chamber drama. It's more high key black and white than we're used to with a lot of noirs. And like we're probably used to with more traditional classic Hollywood Betty Davis movies, you don't really get the stark contrast between light and dark, except in one key way, which is the way Weiler uses shadows here in the film, right? Which is awesome, even at the beginning when he's playing around this whole moon motif, like she is a vampire or werewolf or something, who when the, the moon comes out behind the clouds, she transforms into almost some primal 
entity and you see the way the darkness overtakes her face. You see the way her shadow looms over the body then adding a sense of ominousness to the whole thing. Even when she goes into the room and she goes into her bedroom following the murder and closes herself off. As soon as she closes the door and flips the lights on her in her room, it causes the servant's shadow to appear over the wall, which also adds this really interesting texture to the scene. And you also get Weiler playing with the camera in interesting ways like the point of view shot, which is fairly typical in film noir. You get it here where she is recounting exactly what happened. It's as if we're seeing it from her mind's eye. So there are a lot of Weiler touches here that elevate the letter. Yeah, the, the use of the moon is maybe another instance where where Weiler um, pushes it further than maybe it needs to because there are a couple points where working with cinematographer Tony Gaudio, they'll have that full moon bearing down on her face as she looks up. And, you know, those eyes don't need a moon spotlight, right? No. They can they can do that on their own. But but it is it is a motif that's throughout that does make it I don't know, that that kind of recalled noir a little bit to me, especially when that moonlight, as I said, comes through the blind so often in these various rooms. So I did want to go back to Jezebel and talk a little bit about um she plays there, Davis plays uh 1850s, I think, New Orleans, um, a socialite who has a family plantation. And there is a scene in Jezebel where she orders the enslaved people on that plantation to sing. And she's using this as a way to needle this abolitionist rival. That's that's kind of why she's doing it. Um, but it did recall how Leslie in this film on this plantation does have these Malay workers around her. They they rush when she shoots uh, the man at the beginning and and look up at her. And it's interesting to see how... Weiler is going to, again, handle this element of of the narrative, of the story. And I think one way, I talked about how in Jezebel, his camera does make room for a lot of the black servants more than you would expect. They're mm-hmm. not given full time to become fully realized characters, but the camera does notice them more than usual for that era. Here, I was fascinated by the character of Ong, played by mm-hmm. Sen Yun. This is the Malay assistant to Stephenson's lawyer, and this is the guy who kind of serves as the go-between between the dead man's widow, who is part Malay herself, and um, the letter that the widow has. She wants to get ransom for it, right? So Ang becomes the go-between of the widow and the lawyer. And I loved watching how the actor, Sen Young, plays this because mm-hmm. Ang is always servile and, you know— he has, but he has this obsequiousness to him as well. And you can see his realization of that for the first time, he's got a little power, some unexpected mm-hmm. power that he can hold over his white, his British boss. And so I loved watching how his eye contact would occasionally become more direct than maybe before. Um, and even the servile touches he do were kind of mocking. It was Mm -hmm. kind of like, we know I don't need to do this anymore, but I'm going to do it to rub it in. Basically, it's like the colonizers still need him, but now it's on his terms. Yeah. And I just thought it was fascinating that not only that's the way it was played, but that the movie made room for that sort of element. Yeah, I agree. I mean, just like Jezebel, the relationship of the characters to the setting and the people that serve them, the people they 
have dominion over or want to believe they have dominion over is really complicated in some problematic ways, but also in, I think, some genuinely challenging and subversive ways. And the irony of Ong is the way Sen Young plays him. He's ingratiating. You said obsequious. Great word. He's seemingly insincere because of that constant smile, yes. the soothing tone, even as he's discussing these under-the-table dealings. Yet he's probably, Josh, the only truly honest character in the movie. And I'm including, like, the husband who doesn't know that he's dishonest but has been living with his wife for 10 years and doesn't know a thing about her, right? right. And Joyce, obviously, we see him, as we said, go through this crisis of truth and integrity. But he sticks to the facts at all times, answers every question directly. He admits when he's asked the cut he gets, what he's getting out of this. He doesn't shy away from it. He doesn't try to to change the subject or anything like that. It really is this sort of anti-colonial FU, every right. aspect of that yes. performance. And I love, too, a nice Weiler visual touch that represents that disparity between them. The car scene, right, where he follows him out to the parking lot and one guy's going off to the club, you mm-hmm. know, to have this nice lunch. That's the lawyer, of course, Howard Joyce, and he gets in his nice, big luxury car. And as soon as he pulls away, we see Ong get in his car, and it's this tiny little thing that makes a bunch of noise. And that's all you need to know about that disparity of where they are in life and how they're perceived and how they are treated. And you also get the references to everyone that works for them on this plantation being referred to as boys, even though— I mean, none of them are kids, as I recall, but they're all boys to them. And then even that description of Mrs. Hammond. So this is mm-hmm. the wife of the man who was killed, played by Gail Sondergaard. And when asked about her by Joyce, Betty Davis says that she was all covered with gold chains and bracelets and spangles, her face like a mask. I mean, she completely derides her and treats her like she's this other that she's horrified by or disgusted by in many ways. And when you recognize that and you hear lines like that and you see what Weiler is really playing with in this movie, it occurs to me, Josh, that the reason why she probably really killed Mr. Hammond isn't just because he turned her down. It isn't just because she was in love with him and wanted him, but it goes back to that idea of control and her sense of her identity and who she is. And it's that Jeff Hammond left her for her, mm-hmm. for for that woman, for that woman all covered with gold chains and bracelets and spangles. That's what her ego, that's what her sense of privilege and entitlement couldn't handle. Yeah, the root, it went this far because of Leslie's racism is the implication. Mm-hmm. And yep. the, the term they use for, for Mrs. Hammond is Eurasian. And you get the sense that if this was just another woman from England who Hammond had been married to and Leslie lost him, their affair broke up over, it may not have gone this far. So that's an intriguing element. But we got to say casting Sondergaard, you know, not smart Uh, to, to back up what Leslie describes her as they kind of give her this grotesque eye makeup. This is an yes. actress, you know, grew up in in Minnesota, I believe, of Swedish descent, who they're casting as a woman who's uh, part British, part Malay. And, you know, it's it's an ugly performance, too, I think. It's very pursed. And uh, what I what's difficult to reconcile, though, is that she might be part of, for me, 
the movie's standout scene. And this is when they do exchange the letter. And here's where the filmmaking comes to the forefront. Yes. I think it does become a noir. Um, This is in an apartment where Mrs. Hammond lives, I believe. Again, Ang leads them here. And Leslie comes in. How about what Leslie is wearing here? It's like this shroud of lace she's been working on. Oh, makes her look like such an innocent, right? And then there's this doorway strung with beads and Mrs. Hammond appears through it. And I'm really conflicted about it because in many ways it's it's emphasizing all of these these exotic stereotypes that Leslie has described. Mrs. Hammond is wearing a, a dark dress. Mm-hmm. We've got that makeup. She's kind of in shadow until she emerges through the beads and she's up higher on a higher staircase. Very imposing. And so it's reinforcing a lot of these stereotypes, but at the same time, it is such a striking contrast not only kind of in how these how leslie at least thinks of herself is kind of why i think it works because it's making it so obvious that in her mind this is how she's seen mrs hammond and how she's seen herself covered in lace Mm -hmm. but we on the outside can see that it's just another one of her lies and and we've got some great touches here where the the moonlight again is coming through more blinds Mm -hmm. there's a wind chimes in the room and they start to to tinkle a little bit and i like how that bleeds into max steiner's score even and becomes abstract yeah it's very bad in here would you mind opening a window It's a really mesmerizing moment that's unfortunately, you know, kind of playing with some of these uh, out-of-date tropes as well. For sure. Everything you said is definitely there to be wrestled with. But the reason why I do think the scene works so well, one of the reasons is, and it gets back to the notion I mentioned with the cars in the disparity in power. The height difference and the way they're shot in this scene between Davis and Sondergaard is really striking. And you have... Sondergaard being so imposing and so tall that the little innocent Leslie, as she approaches her, we actually see Betty Davis in this scene cower. Mm. Now, it's it's her cowering in her own way. Which yeah. Is, there's still a little bit of defiance to it. She's got a little bit is, of ang in her there in how she's playing she, it. I think so. But I still really see in her some fear for the mm. first and only time in that movie you really actually see a little bit of fear in her presence. And that's why if you jump ahead a little bit to the ending of the film, I don't think the ending works at all here for Hmm. multiple reasons. It's partly because it's so clearly a tacked on accommodation for the Hays Code, right? Where someone has to be punished for a wrongdoing. I think that's just very obvious, but I don't think it makes any sense either with Mrs. Hammond's actions and her motivations previously, and what I think was ultimately accomplished by that meeting that we're discussing, that scene between the two women, because she got her punishment of Mrs. Crosby there in the scene. She got her to have to face her, to have to essentially grovel in front of her, and in that moment, confront her own smallness and her own loathsomeness. And You don't see Betty Davis that vulnerable often, and especially, as I said, here in this movie. But I think that whole scene is an upending of that power dynamic and an assertion of power by Mrs. Hammond, which is why, again, at the end, in addition to heightening the problematic kind of exoticism of it, these these Eurasians and their wickedness is what comes through, I think, there in the end. Beyond that, 
it's just completely unnecessary because she got her redemption. She got her moment in that scene. Okay, let me try to defend it because um, I, I, I do understand those reservations, but I, it's a pretty wild ending, and I I kind of yes. kind of love it. Um, I think as far as Mrs. Hammond goes, it could be that. Um, yes, she had that moment and she certainly gets the money, but what happens to Leslie? She, you know, she goes to another party and she's right. celebrated. She's brought back. Yeah. There is, aside from that little moment, there is no real repercussions to her. So you could argue that somehow Mrs. Hammond is aware of that. And I would, it ate I at would her. argue that. Okay. It ate at her more, I guess is what I'm saying. And so then that, that is what pushed her to take that next step. I think what I would argue is she knows that within this society and because of who she is and who Leslie is, she's never going to actually get the justice she deserves and wants. The one thing she can do is have that face to face encounter where she asserts herself over her. Unless she takes it a step further and literally takes it into her own but hands, which is what have that scene. Which, why even make that scene as dramatic as it is and make it about her being in that. Position well, this is where I think you're probably right that it's, yeah. it's something added. Um, yeah. but the other thing that, that I like about it is that it's not, it's not completely out of no, I like how it's staged and teased. So this, this knife that we have seen earlier in the film is just left outside mm-hmm. Leslie's door, right? She finds it again in the moonlight. Um, and what I like is the element of choice that comes into play here. So it's it's almost like Mrs. Hammond is offering Leslie the choice. It's it's almost yes. suicide. Um, and in a way could be argued that. And I think this gets to where we can say, bring us back to the beginning of this conversation, can we find some sympathy for Leslie? Um, because I think what that final scene does do is add another element to her awareness. She she tries. Uh, I think there's a great scene where she tries to reconcile with her husband and just can't do it because and I think it pairs well to that early scene you described where from her point of view, we see her story and she's very calm and composed mm-hmm. when she's telling that story here. She tells her husband um, it, it, she gets her con- confession and she's totally frantic. She's almost deranged, like undone when she tells him exactly what has been going on. Um, but then we get this little twist where I, I don't know that she's kind of still lying to herself, even in her confession. And so I think there is an element of sympathy there for a woman who has become so trapped by her own lies. She's guaranteed her own misery. Mm-hmm. And that's where we start to see not only a variation in the performance, but maybe a deeper understanding of this character where she's just not the, you know, the conniving evil woman. There's a little more nuance yeah. and layers there. And then I like, as I said, the, the choice element that's it's going to sure. be in Leslie's hands finally how this all ends. Right. Of course, the counter to that, though that was all very eloquently stated and well-argued, Josh, is that it's Weiler going through a bunch of machinations <laughs> to get her outside. <laughs> you know? Well, like, sometimes, sometimes you know, you need the fences to, to be challenged to, to create great art. Yes. So maybe that's what's <laughs> happening. Maybe. The letter is available to rent on demand on most platforms. If you see the film and agree or disagree with our takes, email us, feedback at filmspotting.net. I think it's going to be a couple weeks before we get to our second entry in our 1940s noir marathon, 1942's This Gun for Hire. Follow along at filmspotting.net slash marathons. Josh, that's our show. 
That it is. If you want to connect with us on Facebook and Twitter, Adam is at Filmspotting. I'm at Larson on Film. Over in the show archives at Filmspotting.net, you can find reviews, interviews, and top fives going back to 2005. And on the website, you can vote in the current Film Spotting poll. We're asking, what's your favorite solo road trip movie? To order show t-shirts or other merch, visit Filmspotting.net slash shop. And you can subscribe to our weekly newsletter at Filmspotting.net slash newsletter. Out this weekend on Digital Barb and Star, go to Vista Del Mar, starring Kristen Wiig and Annie Mumolo, the co-writer of Bridesmaids with Kristen Wiig. And in limited release, French Exit, starring Michelle Pfeiffer and Lucas Hedges. That's a new comedy from director Azazel Jacobs, who made Terry and the Lovers. Land, the directing debut from Robin Wright. The World to Come, about two women who forge a close connection in the mid-19th century American frontier, is out. That stars Vanessa Kirby and Catherine Waterston, along with Casey Affleck and Christopher Abbott. Minari, there are limited virtual screenings this weekend, and it's out on VOD February 26th. Judas and the Black Messiah, also out in theaters and available on HBO Max, reviewed earlier in the show and is recommended by both hosts. Next week, we will talk about Silence of the Lambs upon its 30th anniversary and more. Don't tell my dad I'm going to be watching Silence of the Lambs again, okay? I I won't. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Halgren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Kat Sullivan. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.